The reading is taken from Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. And if you're following in the Pew Bibles, it's page 1053. 1053, Luke 19, 1 to 10. It's all about Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay in your house today. So he came down, he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, this man too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We're in a series right now called 21st Century Discipleship, in which we're thinking about some important issues from our time, but also thinking about what the Bible says about them. And so today we're thinking about forgiveness and restoration um, in a cancel culture, okay? And with what I'm going to be talking about and building toward in my, in my sermon, I feel like there's a few different levels uh, to what I'm talking about here. There could be some of you for whom... You've experienced something difficult and forgiveness. It's a, actually, this is a painful process, but really important. There's another level which is almost proactive in our ability to extend forgiveness and restoration to others that is incredibly powerful for, for showing the grace of God to a world that needs it, okay? Um, but we'll come back to some of that. So when I say the phrase cancel culture, I think for some people you're like, some people are like, yep, I know what that is. And there's some other people who are just like, I have no clue. And I hope I can take you all along with me this morning. Um, but here we go. And so in recent years, our culture has become hyper aware on certain topics such as racism and social injustice. And sometimes this lines up nicely with what we believe as Christians. Sometimes this has been called cancel culture where the disapproval of a person because of something they've done has gone viral. Okay? That's the way I'd sort of put it in, in my words. And so a person might very well have their book or movie contract canceled. But often fear in this area runs much deeper. A person being canceled may mean that their whole reputation is destroyed. And this can happen based on a, 
a, a single action or statement. And the more profound or newsworthy the action or statement, the better, right? So let me, let me give you some examples to bring this home for a moment. You know, slap someone on stage, uh, be rude to staff in a restaurant, have your lecture canceled at a university for fear of things you might say, ask questions about gender or sexuality that people aren't supposed to ask, and the tide might turn against you. It's, and it seems like there are many things for, whom, for which a person could be canceled, and the list seems to be regularly getting longer, all right? So check this out. Let me give you an example. Um, about a year ago, um, the art historian Andrew Graham Dixon was speaking at, at the um, Cambridge Union Society when he quoted Adolf Hitler using some racial slurs. Now, I don't know about you, but my unwritten rule book, okay, says that you, you can quote someone like Hitler just so long, but you need to disagree with what they're saying. Do you agree? Like, it's funny, none of us have this written down, we just know it. And, and so, so long as you disagree with what they're saying, um, students, however, at Cambridge took offense with the fact that within that quote, there were racial slurs, and so the new rule, in, in essence, was that racial slurs should never be said. Okay? There was outrage across campus. The professor apologized, which didn't help as it got the attention of the media, including free speech champions that wanted to cancel the professor for apologizing. Right? So all of a sudden what you've got, you essentially have a debate happening with both sides taking their anger out on Andrew Graham Dixon. Now the interesting thing there is, of course, there's these unwritten rules that could cause a person to be canceled, and there are new things being added. And essentially, again, especially the more profound or newsworthy that moment or action or whatever might be, the worse it can be. Now, sometimes we might strongly agree with someone being canceled, right? Think of examples in the Me Too movement or the recent arrest of Andrew Tate. Other times, we might think that the punishment goes far beyond the crime. And then as well, in our culture, sometimes there's places and ways that people are trying to push back against this. You could think of examples like uh, Dave Chappelle in his comedy special, The Closer, as he builds to talking about a friend who, in response to a raging storm on Twitter, committed suicide or shows like Apple TV's The Morning Show that try to give you the perspective of characters trying to live under the weight of cancel culture, okay? So that gives you an idea, just a quick idea of this, uh, this theme of cancel culture, and actually it's very significant in our world today. So then as Christians, where do our values about forgiveness and restoration sit with cancel culture? Let me start by suggesting that morality within culture is nothing new and can be a strong force for good, okay? Let me start there. But with cancel culture, however, we get something new that seems fueled by the immediacy of the internet. Like never before could someone be shunned so quickly and on a global scale, right? That's something new that, we, that we're seeing with cancel culture. Um, 
But again, there, there are a few things here. So let me take you into a few Bible passages to help you think this through. And by the way, these passages I've chosen because they're very different from each other, but should be held in tension with each other, okay? So first, check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Um, there's a situation there. Let me read these verses. It says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Like, whoa. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we have this horrible example of a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. And it says, and Paul says, beginning of verse 2, and you are proud. Which is interesting, trying to wonder, in what way was the Corinthian church proud of this? Now, I'm, now there's different interpretations here. I'm going to give, I'm going to be slightly optimistic. I don't think the church is proud that this man is doing this, but proud that even someone like this is welcome in their church, okay? Which I think we can understand. Paul's instruction is that this person should be put out of their fellowship. Now fast forward to 2 Corinthians. And we have a passage there that seems like it's probably the same guy. All right? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So now, notice, between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, it appears that the church has followed what Paul has said, but probably gone too far, okay? And so notice some things that we can learn from this. First, our value on forgiveness and grace doesn't mean that we don't stand up against sin, Okay? And secondly, sometimes the judgment of a group is helpful for change. So just to say in connection to this, I think morality within culture can be a good thing. But I, ideally, I want that morality to line up with Christian values. Does that make sense? Right? And then third thing I'd point out from what we see here in First and Second Corinthians is that this is all a means of bringing someone to repentance and should be held together with our beliefs about forgiveness and restoration, which brings us to the reading that we had today, okay? Um, Jericho was a wealthy border city, and as such, uh, would have had a custom station. There would have been a great amount of tax to collect there. Zacchaeus is described in verse 2 as a chief tax collector, Israel at the time was occupied by Rome. This means Zacchaeus was responsible for collecting tax for Rome. Now think about this. If you're the Romans, having a, a Jewish man in this role is perfect, right? He knows the people. Like, he, perfect for collecting tax. For Zacchaeus, this is a quick path to becoming wealthy, but also for Zacchaeus, he would have been seen as a traitor to his own people, right? Siding with the Romans instead of his own people. He would have certainly been shunned by his own people. And scripture has loads of examples. You can come up with your own list. Loads of examples of people that are in similar places. 
So here's, here's, here's a list I came up with quickly. Think of this. The woman at the well in John chapter 4. Or Matthew the tax collector who becomes a disciple. Peter having denied Jesus three times. Or the woman caught in the act of adultery. The Ethiopian eunuch. Or even Paul who persecuted the early church and yet would become one of its most significant leaders. Jesus, it says, sees Zacchaeus and in verse 5 says to Zacchaeus, and I don't know if this strikes you out, but says to Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. Which is weird, would be weird today, but it was even odder back then, okay? Because normally you wouldn't just invite yourself to someone's house. And yet this is received very warmly by Zacchaeus. And the reason I think this is, is because it's a profound act of acceptance in this moment. And that's why this act, I must stay at your house today, immediately stirs up trouble. So on one side, you've got Zacchaeus, who welcomes Jesus gladly and responds with repentance and generosity. But then you also have the crowd, the people who are shocked that Jesus would go to the house of a sinner who muttered, <laughs> like, right? Consider their surprise for a moment. Like, collectively, they are not ready to welcome Zacchaeus. And so, think about this situation for a moment. Think about all the characters in this situation. If you were to place yourself in the story, which characters do you most identify with, right? Like, are you, like, where's your heart? Are you, with Jesus, able to welcome someone that everyone else has turned against? By the way, by Jesus doing this, you would think he's at risk of everyone turning on him as well, right? Who would eat at the house of a sinner? And so are you with Jesus? Are you with the disciples just waiting to see how this is going to turn out, <laughs> playing it safe? Or are you with the crowd upset by Jesus' action? Or might you even feel like Zacchaeus, like you're an outcast yourself? Wherever you're at in the story, there are things that we can be challenged by and things that we can learn. Let me bring it to us personally for a moment. If you've got someone that you need to forgive, it can be incredibly painful and difficult. You might, they might have hurt you deeply. You might have good reason for holding a grudge. Can I encourage you to ask God for help? And know that our goal is to forgive. Or is there someone that you need to reach out to, to offer restitution to? I, I find it interesting here that, that Jesus here gives Zacchaeus a way back into being accepted, which is something that Zacchaeus can't do for himself. Right? Like just thinking socially, thinking of what, what it's like. Actually, there's, there's something that Zacchaeus has as a, as a member of the group, as it were, that he can offer to Zacchaeus. That's powerful here. As God's people, we reflect God's character. We should do. He is quick to forgive when he forgives the past is forgotten. He's quick to see and love people that others have discarded. 
And something that's beautiful is that throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, throughout time, over and over again, the Christian church has been marked by radical forgiveness and radical restoration that has shocked and surprised the world around. And it should continue to mark us. And let me pull this together with a story um, from one of the kind of darkest moments in human history. There are loads of examples, loads of stories like this that one could share, actually, which is, is encouraging. Uh, this is from the mid-90s, when Hutu extremists killed between 800,000 and a million people in Rwanda, right? And I've read, um, I've read something interesting about this, about the power of a metaphor. Something really sad about this, that, that when they were killing that many people, they would refer to the people as tall trees or cockroaches. Something really sad about the power of a metaphor, because then to them they were just clearing tall trees or exterminating cockroaches. Absolutely horrible. And in the middle of that situation, there was a woman whose only son was killed. And she was consumed with grief and hate and bitterness. And she prayed to God about it. She prayed, God, reveal my son's killer. And one night she had this dream. And the dream that she had was that she was going to heaven. But on the way to heaven, there was a house. And for some reason in her dream, she had to go in the front door of the house and out the back door of the house. Right? And so she prayed to God in her dream, God, whose, whose house is this? And God told her, it's the house of your son's killer. And two nights later, there was a knock at her front door, and she opened it, and there stood a young man, and he was about her son's age, and he said, I'm the one that killed your son. Since that day, I've had no life, no peace, so here I am, I'm placing my life in your hands. Kill me, I'm dead already. Throw me in jail, I'm in prison already. Torture me, I'm in torment already. Do with me as you wish. And the woman found in that moment, to her own surprise, that she didn't want to kill him or throw him in jail or torture him. In that moment, she found that she only wanted one thing, a son. And so she said this, I ask this of you. Come into my home and live with me. Eat the food I would have prepared for my son. Wear the clothes I would have made for my son. Become the son I lost. And so he did. And you see in that story, you see profound forgiveness and restoration. And the church, again, has been, has been marked by profound forgiveness and restoration throughout the ages. You might have some way where personally you need to deal with this, and that could be very difficult. But as well, my challenge is that we become a people that are proactive, like Jesus was, with showing the grace and love of God to a world that needs to see it. Let's pray. Father, we ask, um, we ask that you would help us with this. We ask that, that you give us the courage and strength that we need to show your love. Give us your wisdom, give us your help. In Jesus' name, amen.